Chapter Twenty Six of Up the River by Oliver Optic. A Desperate Struggle with the Rushing Waters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The water had risen so that the Sylvania had swung around and drifted halfway up to the knoll or to the houses on the highest part of it. As soon as we were under way, I had a chance to look over our large number of passengers. Three-quarters of them were Negroes, mostly house servants. I was told that the field hands had escaped in another direction before the water rose high enough to prevent it. The inundation was only partly due to the crevasse, for the water had broken in at some unknown point in the rear of the plantations. We had taken off the four families that occupied the mansion houses. They were all highly cultivated people, ladies and gentlemen in the highest sense of the words. I had conducted them all to the main cabin, but they were not disposed to remain there. They wanted to see how the Sylvania was to return to the Mississippi River, and express many doubts as to her being able to make her way through the crevasse against the strong current. I had some painful doubts myself in this direction. I had told the engineer about them and hinted that we should want all the steam he could carry, but it was only a question of the power of the engine to force the vessel against the current. There would be no pitching and plunging such as we had experienced in coming the other way. We had not long to deliberate upon the matter of our exit from the fields over which we had been sailing. As the water had risen about a foot inside of the levee, I considered our chances good of going through without much difficulty. I went to the wheel and took a place by the pilot. I saw that several steamers had arrived during our absence, and the pilot said there were attached to the levee force and had come to close the breach. I could not see how it was to be done, but I had no time to think of the matter. I rang the gong one stroke when we were within a hundred yards of the crevasse and as I had arranged with the engineer to do. The Sylvania soon began to shake and quiver as though she were in the hands of an angry giant under the pressure of the steam. I had sent all the passengers to the after part of the vessel, giving the planters and their families places on the hurricane deck. I desired to trim her aft, as we had hardly coal enough in the bunkers to keep the screw entirely under water. I regarded it as an excellent thing to have so much live ballast on board. I gave Buck and Hop strict orders not to let a single person come on the forecastle. I put Cobbington and Ben Bowman on the hurricane deck to keep the passengers there on the after part. If a few went forward, they would all do so, for it was the best place to see the operation of the steamer. By these means, I hoped to keep the propeller entirely under water, and thus get the full benefit of its actions on the swift current. It was still a torrent, but by no means so terrible as when we had gone through before. Moses Brickland had never shaken the Sylvania as he was shaking her now. He was a prudent young man, and I never had occasion to criticize what he did. He understood the present situation as well as I did. The levee force was waiting to close the gap, and thus save many more lives miles from the scene of its operations. We must get through at once, or the gap would be closed. 
The abrupt fall was not more than a foot now, and I had strong hopes that we could overcome it. It seemed to me that the water was rushing through the crevasse at the rate of twenty miles an hour. The arithmetic of the situation was therefore all against me. Moses had never run the Sylvania more than twelve knots an hour, and he was obliged to hurry her to do that. He had told me he could get fifteen miles an hour out of her on a great emergency, but he had never been disposed to try it. He had overhauled the boiler at New Orleans and reported it in first-rate condition, yet I could not, mathematically, see how a vessel going fifteen miles an hour could stem a current of twenty miles. But the force of the current was merely guesswork. It might be twenty, and it might be no more than ten miles. Mr. Bell agreed with me on the former figure, while Washburn and Ben Bowman insisted it was not more than ten at the present time. If I split the difference between the two estimates, it would leave just the result which the engineer could obtain on an emergency like the present. The Sylvania went into the rapid current, which we began to feel at fifty yards from the gap, but it did not stop or even sensibly detain us for the water was scattered as soon as it passed through the opening. We made our course at a right angle with the levee, and kept the helm firmly against any tendency to wobble, for if the swift tide had struck her on the side, it would have hurled her around in spite of us. At twenty yards from the levee we began to slacken our speed, for here we got almost the full force of the current, but she still went ahead, though she quivered as if the struggle would shake her in pieces. Not one of us said a word in the pilot house. I directed the helm, for I was more accustomed to the working of the steamer than any of my companions. The bow went up abreast of the inside of the dike. The Sylvania trembled like a racehorse after his first heat. We held her head steady up to the work, but I could not see that she gained a single inch. The propeller whirled like a circular saw, such as I had often observed in the lumber mills at home. I almost fancied that I could hear it buzz. I watched the edge of the crevasse, but I could not see that we either gained or lost. For several minutes we struggled against the savage tide. It was a desperate situation. The people on the levee now swelled into a crowd by the arrival of several steamers were watching us with intense interest. No one spoke a word. "'Look out sharp for the helm, Mr. Bell,' I shouted, so as to be heard above the roaring of the rushing waters and the clang of the engine. I thought he did not respond to my movements with the wheel as promptly as was necessary. I felt that the least turn to the right or the left would be fatal to us, for by this time I realized the situation was vastly more perilous than when we went into the current before. The least wobble might cause the current to strike her on the side and send her over on her beam ends in the vortex below us. "'Can't you crowd her a little more, Moses?' I called through the speaking tube. "'Not much more,' he promptly replied. "'We're not losing anything,' said the pilot, holding his breath. "'Mind the helm,' I replied, for I felt I could not hold her alone. "'If we get the bow half a degree across the current, it is all up with us. I can hold her alone, but you take the feeling off my hands, he answered warmly. He meant that I began to move the wheel before he felt the pressure on his hands, for one steers a vessel very much as he drives a horse, 
and depends quite as much upon feeling as upon sight. My feeling was much quicker than his, and I would not give up the helm to him, but told him he must watch my movements. "'We have gained an inch!' exclaimed the pilot. "'What is an inch going through such a torrent as this?' I replied, though I felt encouraged by the fact, if it was a fact, for I dared not look to the right or left as he did. It seemed to me that the steamer would soon go through the crevasse or shake herself to pieces in the struggle. The jar and the quivering were so much increased that I was sure Moses was doing something more than he ordinarily considered his best. In a few minutes more we had worried up the little fall, which indicated the difference between the height of the water on either side of the levee. We had gained several yards, but I don't think we made more than an inch a minute, and those minutes seemed like hours. Suddenly, the Sylvania began to increase her speed through the water, and I concluded that we had passed the swiftest part of the current. Washburn informed me that the stern of the steamer was inside of the cut, and I felt that the battle was won. Still, I kept my eyes fixed on the flagpole forward in order to hold the vessel in the middle of the gap. "'I think we shall fetch it,' said Mr. Bell. "'No doubt of it, if we don't lose our chances by talking about them,' I replied. The pilot said no more. I did not want him to abate his zeal until we were outside of the levee, for it would have been the easiest thing in the world to lose all we had gained by the struggle of the last hour. We kept it up half an hour longer. When the bow was outside of the levee, I was afraid Bell would think we were safe, while it was still possible to be carried back. But the steamer increased her speed every moment now, and we were soon out in the broad river. I kept her at her course, and as soon as she was clear of the treacherous current, she darted off at a furious speed. All right, Moses, I shouted through the tube. The next instant I heard the steam escaping furiously through the safety valve. I had no doubt that the chief engineer felt an intense relief when he heard my voice the last time, for no money or any consideration short of the safety of the Sylvania would have permitted him to put on such a press of steam. "'Excuse me, Mr. Bell, if I spoke sharply to you and said anything to hurt your feelings, for I meant nothing of the kind,' I said to the pilot when we were in the middle of the river. "'Don't mention it, Captain,' he replied warmly. "'I can say, and I reckon I know something about steamboats, I never saw a boat better handled than this one has been from first to last. I thought I had only a boy for a captain, but I find that you understand your business.' "'Thank you, Mr. Bell. You are very kind to say so,' I replied with a blush. "'I think I know the feeling of this vessel's helm rather better than anyone else in these parts, and I was a little afraid you might not see the necessity of keeping her up without any wobbling.' "'You were right every time, Captain. I never handled a craft of the sort before, and it was quite right for you to trust her to no one but yourself.' As soon as we were fairly out of the river, the people on the levee set up a volley of cheers, which was taken up by the Negroes on board. I saw the islander had made fast to a steamer a little below the breach, and I asked the pilot to lay the Sylvania alongside of her. "'Young man, you are a brave boy,' said Colonel Hungerford, the planter who had first come on board of the steamer. "'I was on the point of telling you before you started back that you could never get through that hole.' 
and I was going to tell you of a way by which you could have gotten through the lakes and streams into the Bayou La Forche, and up that to the Mississippi, but I see you need no advice from me. We are all very grateful to you. I beg you will not feel under any obligation to us, for we are sort of sea knights roaming about in quest of adventures, and we were very glad of the opportunity to render you and others any assistance. I believe you and your family were in no particular danger. I don't know about that, my young captain, replied the planter, shaking his head. My mansion is surrounded with verandas, and the water was beginning to lift it off its foundations. I took my glass and looked at the house. One end of it appeared to be lifted up. I would not have stayed in it two hours more for half the state. I've been through three inundations before, and I know something about them, replied the planter. I hope I shall see more of you. As we came up to the islander, the passenger of both vessels on board of her began to clap their hands. I was embarrassed by this demonstration, and after asking Washburn to see that we were made fast to our consort, I sat down in the pilot house where they could not see me. End of chapter